Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. My name is Wish Wolf. I'm press secretary to Mr. Trump. Mr. Trump will be out in a few minutes, but before he does, I'd like to go over some ground rules. Ground rules? If your question contains an implied criticism of Mr. Trump, you will be punched in the face. If Mr. Trump begins talking in the middle of your question and you do not stop talking, you will be whip-kicked. Whip-kicked? It's not pleasant. And if you give Mr. Trump some attitude, we all know what that means, Megyn Kelly stuff, right? You'll have an eight-minute meeting with our new deputy press secretary, Mr. Krav Maga. Say hello, Mr. Maga. He doesn't speak English. We haven't figured out what he speaks yet. He is an expert in Muay Thai, so he can fracture your neck with his elbow. Meetings with Mr. Maga will take place in the octagon. That cage over there? Bingo. You may see some of your friends from Politico in there right now. They're the ones who wrote the nasty articles. They're disgusting people. The Wolverines will make short work of them. Wolverines? Now, if you want Mr. Trump to come out, you have to close your eyes and clap your hands really fast and say the motto of the United States. E pluribus unum? I've never heard that one. What are the odds the motto of America is in a foreign language? No, I'm pretty sure that the motto of the United States is, we can do this the easy way or the hard way. It's not. He's ISIS. Take him away. And get ready for a show, a top show, a show that'll be fair to the greatest human being alive today. And now, fully recovered from his Wolverine bites, Colin McEnroe. I don't know about fully recovered. I'm, I'm healed, but I don't know if you ever really get over uh, a Wolverine bite. Um, anyway, we're going to be talking about, and it hasn't gotten quite that bad, or has it? Uh, we are going to be talking today about what it's like to be one of the people covering Donald Trump as he uh, barnstorms around the United States. A little bit later on the show, we'll be talking uh, to a, a, a scholar who uses game theory to evaluate the technical question, um, is torture ever worth it? Does torture ever produce results uh, that are usable and that are worth it on any kind of scale? Obviously, it's impossible to divorce that from ethics. We'll talk about that, too. Uh, and then at the end of the show, possibly on a more cheery, sunny, happy note, uh, Doug Glanville, uh, although not a completely apolitical now, Doug Glanville is just back from uh, Cuba where he, a former Major League Baseball player and currently an analyst for ESPN, uh, covered the baseball game witnessed by President Obama and um, and interviewed President Obama and I think partook of that strange melange of politics and horsehide. Uh, all right, so that's all to come. Joining us right now is uh, Seth Stevenson, uh, a guy whose work uh, at Slate Magazine, where, where he's a senior writer, we have really enjoyed in the past, and he is the author of Grounded, A Down-to-Earth Journey Around the World. But most significantly, uh, as a different kind of tourism, I guess, he decided to join the Trump press corps for a while just to see what these people are going through. So first of all, Seth Stevenson, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. Um, so there's sort of at least two big strands in this story. One of them is just sort of the, 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 the kind of human rights condition of the press. And then the other one is the ability of the, the press to get good information or get usable information uh, to pin uh, the candidate down the way candidates are, are um, conventionally pinned down. But, but maybe before we get to both of those strands, there's an inversion here, right, of what we're what we typically know, which is that. The media and the uh, and political campaigns often have strained relationships 
testy relationships. If the campaign's not going well, the candidate doesn't like the coverage he's getting, staff's not getting along. That All of that's not unusual, but there's sort of a mutual interest in keeping it at least in a state of halfway decent repair. Uh, you, you as political candidate can't really function with a press that actively hates you. Um, so you have to be kind of crypto-truckling with them a little bit, and the press have to, has to kind of make the relationship work, too. This seems to have inverted with the Trump campaign. I mean, he doesn't seem to have a lot of incentive to have any kind of comedy uh, with the people covering him. No, and what the reporters I spoke to who, who cover him on a daily basis said is that his press shop is a little bit more like celebrity PR operation than a traditional political press operation. Um, they're severely understaffed. It's just basically one person, and that's a strategy in itself because they just can't respond to that many requests from the press. And so the, the, it's sort of this gatekeeper keeping the press away from Donald Trump as opposed to your, your usual political uh, campaign press operation where they get chummy with the reporters, and they figure out what you need, and they try to help you out. You ride on a charter plane with the candidate at this point in the campaign, so you're inside the Secret Service bubble. With Trump, he rides alone in this private Yet. You try to chase him around in commercial flights. You're not chummy with his press operation. Most of your emails and texts to his press uh, his press person uh, go unanswered. Um, and there, there's just it is it is much more adversarial. To be to be fair, Trump is in some ways the most accessible candidate. If you are a TV host, for instance, where he calls in constantly to your show. Um, but if you're trying to nail him down on a policy question by emailing his, his press person, you're you're going to be out of luck. Right. So his entire press operation, as you report, is a woman named Hope Hicks. No real background in political campaigns, background as a model and with uh, Ralph Lauren. Um, so um, and, and so typically what would happen would be, let's say, like after, over the weekend, one thing that uh, we're all kind of digesting is Trump's idea that maybe uh, he would allow Japan and South Korea uh, to rebuild uh, or build nuclear arsenals as a way of getting out of some of the U.S.'s other obligations about them. As a reporter on the campaign, you'd want to know more about that. You'd either want a chance to further interrogate President, uh, President, excuse me, God help us, uh, Donald Trump about that, uh, or you'd want uh, his campaign staff foreign policy specialist, right? On most campaigns of this size, there'd be somebody that you went to, maybe more than one press aide you went to for questions of this type. That person doesn't exist. Sure. So on your, on your average campaign, if you're a reporter covering it day to day, you get sourced up. You, you, you know their advisors on various issues. There's a press liaison, point person on women's issues, on foreign policy, on domestic policy, on all this stuff, on economic policy. Um, that's just That doesn't really exist here. It, it was only uh, within the last week or so that Trump actually named any foreign policy advisors, and it turned out none of them had spoken to him. Um, so there's not a ton of point in, in, in talking to those people if they haven't actually spoken to the candidate. Um, but then the other problem is, let's say you you email Trump's press shop to, to nail him down on some sort of policy question. You ask, well, is this is this his new position on on, on nuclear uh, capabilities, Japan and South Korea? They might just ignore you, which is frequently the case. You just don't get any response at all, and I think that's the majority of the time that's what happens. If you do get a response, it's generally pretty insufficient, and to the extent that it's the extent that you do get that response, Trump will go on TV that night and say something completely at odds with what the press shop told you the position was. So then you ask them again, and you say, well, he said this tonight. Is that the new position? And they'll sort of change the policy to comport with what he most recently said on TV, and then the next day at a rally, he'll go out and say something completely different again. And so there's, there's sort of futility in trying trying to nail down the policy position anyway. 
It's kind of pre-enlightenment in a way, you know, when when kings, whatever they said on any given day, had the strength of and the force of fact and truth, uh, irrespective of whether it made any sense or uh, had any rational basis. Uh, It's kind of like that. I mean, it's, you know, the enlightenment was sort of about making everything rationally testable, which apparently things no longer are. Yeah, and you know, the, the, there's a constant flow of untruths coming from Donald Trump. I mean, of provable untruths coming from him, and it's and that's another thing that can be very frustrating to deal with as a reporter. You know, if you cover a rally, Donald Trump rally, and you're on deadline, you need to file your story an hour after the rally ends, and he said 42 untrue things. It takes time to thoroughly fact check a new lie. I mean, the old lies have been fact checked, and and he continues to say them anyway, even after they've been debunked. But how many times can you report that lie again? It sort of stops being news. But the new lies, let's say there's a dozen of them, you don't have time to thoroughly fact-check them in an authoritative way and still file your story. Trying to deal with those lies is going to take up calm space, and, and you have to pick your battles because at the same rally he might have said he wants to summarily execute enemy combatants and defile their bodies, which maybe is a bigger story than the fact that he exaggerated the crowd size or his net worth. So it becomes tough to keep up with these lies, and, and he himself, it, it really almost seems like he doesn't even quite realize he's lying half the time. It can, it, I, I was at one rally where he said, we have zero GDP. America has zero GDP. He said it three times. That is just 100% false. And, and the third time he said it, as I was sitting in the media pen, I actually involuntarily said out loud, nope, that's not true, because I just I couldn't let that lie stand any longer. And I said, it, I said it quietly, but I almost surprised myself. Something like inside my body just couldn't brook that lie any longer. Um, one of the things that he said over the weekend in, in the somewhat famous uh, David Sanger and Maggie Haberman uh, interview about foreign policy is that um, that he thinks the, one of the problems with the presidency and the country is that it's too predictable. There's so much uh, in predict- This is sort of a, a Whitman-esque argument that, you know, that he uh, contradicts himself because he contains multitudes that maybe uh, it's really good if nobody really understands what it is that he actually means as opposed to the multitude of things that he says. Sure, and that's a little bit Nixonian. I mean, I think Nixon had this foreign policy strategy being the crazy man who, you know, China wasn't going to be quite sure what he was going to do and that he was going to use that to his advantage. Um, but the, the, the problem with that from Donald Trump is there are no real core principles from which we can extrapolate how he's going to interpret any given situation. I mean, it's one thing to say, I'm going to keep my tactics uh, a secret. I'm not going to say precisely how I'm going to achieve my goals. Sure, that makes some sense, but it's completely unclear what the broader goals are, and they seem to change day to day. There's just no core principle that is going to guide his decision-making that we can rely on and say, okay, we may not know what you're going to do minute to minute because you want to confuse our enemies, and, and that's fine, but we can be assured that the general directional trend is going to be this way. We don't know what the general directional trend is going to be, and I think that's, that's what's different and a little bit scary about this. All right. Well, speaking of a little bit scary, the other part of this is that the reporters do not entirely feel safe, um, particularly at these rallies where at any given moment, Mr. Trump may um, intentionally direct the ire uh, of the crowd at the reporters who are kind of confined in this pen uh, and, and where just things are really quite, uh, speaking of that word, unpredictable. Uh, and so talk a little bit about this. Reporters have not only felt unsafe, they have been unsafe. Yeah, so when you go to a Trump rally as a member of the press, there's this media pen that's that's cordoned off from the rest of the Trump supporters. It's like these metal barricades, sort of bike racks in a rectangle in the middle of the arena floor or the venue floor. And you go in there, and that's where you can work, and you are separated from the people in the crowd, which can can feel a little bit good to have that security because it gets kind of rough out there sometimes or a little unpredictable out there sometimes. The thing is, from about 15 minutes before Trump appears on stage until he's completely left the venue, you're not allowed to enter or exit that media 
media pen. I, at least I saw that at all the rallies I went to where Trump campaign workers will stand at the exit to the media pen and say, you can't come in or out from here on out until Trump is gone from the building. So that means you can either be inside the pen with the safety and security there and, and a space to work and an outlet to plug your laptop in and so forth, or you can be out in the crowd with a close-up angle on what's happening among protesters and supporters and some of the violent altercations that are happening. So it almost seems like it takes two people to cover a Trump rally, one inside the pen and one outside the pen. And it is a little bit scary. So in every single rally, we, all the ones I went to and all the ones I've seen reported on, Trump at some point will pause and say, look at those people. And I'll point to the media pen. These are dishonest people. I have to tell you, these disgusting reporters and all of Trump's supporters will turn around and look at the media pen, look at the journalists there and start booing and shaking their Trump signs, yelling things. Sometimes it even gets a little bit individual. He's called out individual reporters on occasion. He did that with the NBC reporter Katie Turr, where he called her out by name, and a guy in the stands looking at her called her a, 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 a terrible word. And uh, it's 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 pretty vicious, and it it just it. it I know that there's always been a bit of a, a, a give-and-take relationship between candidates and the press, and candidates will often talk about um, their dislike of the press as a way to gin up support among supporters. But this is a, on a different level, and there is sort of a physical threat inherent in it because you are there in this shark cage in the middle of this madness, and people are all looking at you. Uh, one of the reporters I talked to said he wouldn't be shocked if at some point when Trump calls out the media and somebody, one of the supporters, throws something in there and hits somebody in the head, and he said it wouldn't surprise him if that happened. Well, it's sort of what we say about all of this stuff, which is that it's sort of a miracle that people have not gotten more hurt uh, than they have. And it seems like a matter of time whether somebody, whether it's a protester or a member of the press or, or whoever, uh, gets either badly hurt or, or worse. It just seems like a situation that, you know, is just piling up possibilities of a fairly dire sort until one of them really clicks in in a terrible way. You know, Seth Stevenson, this shouldn't work. Everything that you wrote about in your article, everything that we're talking about here, it shouldn't work. It defies the laws of politics, to have that kind of hostile relationship with the people who are covering you. Ultimately, in the past, as I said, you know, it's, it's the old line about don't pick a fight with somebody who buys ink by the barrel and whatever the digital equivalent of that is. Um, but it, it seems as though it does work. In the circular logic of the Trump universe, this is working just fine. Right. So there's, there's a few things going on. One is that Trump supporters don't care that he's lying. You know, you, I can report over and over and over again that it's not true that we have zero GDP. Trump supporters don't care. They don't hold him to his lies. And they don't really think he means it. When he says, for instance, that he's going to line up Muslim combatants and shoot them with bullets dipped in pig's blood, they don't actually think he's going to do that. They, they, they just take it as a way of him saying that he's going to be strong. He's going to be tough. He's going to be tougher than Obama. That's what that means to them. And they, at this point, you know, I think you know that, that Trump is, is, is lying. You know he's saying these outlandish things. And if you are a supporter of Trump, you just don't care. And, and if you uh, are not a supporter of Trump, you've heard it all. You don't, need to, you don't need any more evidence for that fact. And it can be wearisome for the reporters to keep up with all this stuff. I mean, you just you, you can't report the same lie over and over. And um, I think we're going to have to think about how we, cover, we, we covered this campaign in the future. We're going to have to have some kind of debriefing um, because it, we haven't quite gotten it right. And, and, and it's unclear what exactly could have been done differently. I do think with, with, with some of the cable news networks, there is ratings really starts to skew the calculus where the, the, the Trump ratings are this, this honey and you get a taste of it and you can't let it go. And so it becomes very tempting to let them on the air all the time. Um, I do think some of the, particularly the print reporters, 
who cover Trump can get a little sensitive to accusations that they're giving him too much coverage because this is the GOP frontrunner, and this is a candidate in the campaign unlike any that we've seen in, in my lifetime, in, de in decades. And so there's something new here, and it, it's hard to say, no, we're not going to cover the fact that the, GO the presumptive GOP nominee just made fun of a competitor's wife because that's new. I mean, that's new. That's unprecedented. And it's hard to say we're just not going to cover that even if we might not want to. It, it does raise questions, and you raise them in your article, Seth, about what would happen if, God forbid, we should have a Trump presidency and, and how the White House press corps would be treated. I mean, there's sort of this, you know, Marquis of, Marquis of Queensbury rules about how this goes. There's the White House uh, Press Correspondents Association. There's, you know, there, and, and that sort of sets ground rules about what will happen, what won't happen, who gets press passes, who, who doesn't. But, uh, I mean, I guess we have to be kind of agnostic about to what degree he would rewrite the rules as president. I mean, he, ha he has rewritten the rules as candidate. Yeah, well, it's, if we're to go by how he's handled the campaign, it, it becomes a little scary what, what he might do in the White House with regard to how he handles the press. The, the White House Correspondents Association and the National Press Club have already issued some short statements sort of raising some concerns about how Trump has dealt with the press. A couple of the reporters that I talked to on the trail were already starting to express some concerns about what would happen in the Trump White House. But I think uh, in a lot of other areas, the president is hemmed in, um, where you know they, the vast machinery of American government governance, the checks and balances sort of keep the president from doing anything too outlandish in a lot of cases. But with regard to how the White House handles the press, that's a much smaller operation. And, and as you say, it's sort of these quaint societal norms have handled how that has been done in the past. And it's unclear whether uh, a President Trump would adhere to those norms. You know, people have com complained about the Obama White House um, for, for being very closed off to the press in a way that previous administrations haven't. That's been a big deal for a lot of um, uh, uh, media members who've talked about how Obama has just not given the same level of access to the press. But I think all bets are off when it comes to a President Trump. You know, would he, would he, for instance, allow reporters on Air Force One, which is something that presidents traditionally do? Trump doesn't let reporters on his campaign plane right now, his private jet, which other, other candidates let you onto the charter plane and you move within the Secret Service bubble, and you travel with the candidate, and sometimes there are gaggles in the back of the plane. Trump flies on his private jet, and no reporters go on it, except once in a while as a treat, um, and the, other, the reporters just chase him around with commercial flights. If he were president, which would, would reporters travel on Air Force One? Completely unclear. Uh, Trump has also banned reporters from events after their outlets have given him negative coverage. Would, would, would a President Trump just sort of, on a whim, bar the New York Times from the White House briefing room for a couple of weeks because he didn't like something they wrote about him? I mean, it's, it's hard to know that that wouldn't be in his power to do that. It's also hard to know if, you know, this tiny press operation that's sort of strategic in the way that it ignores queries from the press. Would that continue in the White House where, you, you know, you'd be trying to, desperately trying to ask policy questions of a President Trump and the only way he communicates is via Twitter and call-ins to cable news shows and, and uh, you know, addresses the American people looking at the camera where he controls every aspect of it. Um, all of that is worrisome and, and, and uh, a lot of people are starting to worry about it. Yeah, I mean, I think the equation does get, I mean, he's speaking to a rel relatively small slice of the American population right now. The, the the calculus would be different. It will be different, a little bit different in a general election and and will presumably or would presumably be very different in the, uh, the event of a, a White House reign. However, I don't know. I mean, we kind of have to throw out all our ex expectations here because none of them are ever right about this person. Uh, Seth Stevenson, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, you were very brave. And the people who are there, who you left behind in the trenches are even braver. Uh, and uh, we hope to speak to you soon. 
All right. Thanks for having me on. Um, all right. We're going to take a break, and we're going to come back uh, in what may seem a somewhat related development. We're going to talk about torture. Uh, it certainly is something that candidate Trump has felt uh, pretty free to talk about lately and with some enthusiasm. So uh, we'll tell you more after this. When we talk about torture, we usually talk about it in one of two different ways. One of them, one of the ways is just, is it right ever to do it? Um, and a lot of us have our feelings about that. Um, then, but then there's another iteration of that conversation, and that is, um, well, if we, is it right to do it because of the results that it produces? Or, or could it be invalidated uh, without even having a large ethical conversation, a detailed ethical conversation, just on the basis that it doesn't work, it's not worth it, it doesn't produce results that are commensurate with the effort that you put into it. So uh, we'll have a little bit of both of those conversations, I think, with uh, our guest right now, John Scheman, Associate Professor of Political Science at Fairy, Fairleigh Dickinson University and the author of Does Torture Work? Welcome to our show. Hi, thanks for having me. So um, it, it is, I mean, we're going to talk about this in terms of efficacy uh, and usefulness, but we probably should begin by popping open some kind of ethical umbrella over this. And, and in a way, uh, it's hard to divorce the two things because you ultimately, I think, maybe you'll contradict me about this, but you think I think you have to start with some kind of either version or inversion of Blackstone's law. You know, either it's uh, better to torture 99 men who don't have anything to tell you uh, and get that 100th piece of information that saves lives, or it's better, uh, you know, not to torture 99 men who might know something and run, better to do that than run the risk of torturing one completely innocent, information-free uh, man. Uh, you could look at it either way. You could look, look at it the middle ground. So what do we do with that particular question? question of sort of should we ever torture and is it worth it uh, in some ways to, to do horrible things uh, to get one tiny little morsel of, of information. Right, right. So I think there are, there are a lot of things there. Um, <clears throat> you know, the one morsel of information takes us to this, uh, the, the ticking time bomb justification, which we can perhaps go into. But just to address the, the first point of the first question, um, I think you're right. It can't be divorced. Uh, the question of effectiveness can't be divorced because the one way to think about it is it might be that effectiveness isn't a sufficient condition to justify torture. That is to say, even if it worked all the time, we might say, nope, still can't do it um, for ethical reasons. For example, we, you know, we know flamethrowers and biological weapons work, but we don't use them. Um, but it is certainly a necessary condition. That is to say, um, if it can be justified at all, the only kinds of justification are those that rest on the assumption that it works. So if it doesn't work, then it just can't be justified, unless you're justifying on the basis of sadism, which is you know, not the way it's been justified. And, and maybe another sort of precursor to uh, a more nitty-gritty conversation is to say that um, a lot of the people that we're talking about here, people who might or might not be tortured, are often held in a way, uh, first of all, captured or seized for reasons that don't necessarily comport with our understanding of, of, of just process or due process uh, and, and are being held in a way that also violates some of our basic American ideals about this. Um, they, they haven't really met the threshold to even be detained so we can have a conversation about whether to torture them. That's right. I mean, the, um, if you look at the, the, the process by which the CIA and its program um, 
uh, initially captured and, and renditioned and then so-called conditioned people prior to their use of what they called the enhanced techniques, um, those easily meet the definition of, of torture, right, to, in, to include forcible sodomy. Um, so the thing is, the, they were tortured uh, in that program prior to even being questioned, frankly. Um, so you're right. Um, those, those conditions have already, they've already been tortured by the time they even start, start questioning them. And we know from the CIA's own records that um, around uh, one in four of those detainees didn't even meet the CIA's own definition. All right. Now, uh, maybe as many as four in uh, 10 Americans believe that torture is worth it, or at least that it works. You can get good information, um, useful information uh, from torture. Let's listen uh, to one of those Americans. They're chopping off our heads in the Middle East. They want to kill us. They want to kill us. They want to kill our country. They want to knock out our cities. And don't tell me it doesn't work. Torture works, okay, folks? Torture, you know, I have these guys. Torture doesn't work. Believe me, it works, okay? And waterboarding is your minor form. Some people say it's not actually torture. Let's assume it is. But they asked me the question, what do you think of waterboarding? Absolutely fine. But we should go much stronger than waterboarding. That's the way I feel. Well, I don't know who that guy is, but he apparently has not read John Sheeman's book. Um, <laughs> I'd be uh, happy to send him a copy. Yeah, absolutely. Autographed as well. So I, maybe it's worth it just to sort of talk about some possible scenarios here. We're not going to game theory this out because it, that's complicated. We did a whole show about game theory. I have renewed respect for how complicated it is. But, but oh, one thing we know is some percentage of the time, like the Senate report on torture from 2002 to 2008 or whatever, that, the big Senate report, 2014 Senate report on torture, says that 22 percent of the prisoners held by the CIA in interrogation sites didn't meet the minimum standards as possible sources of intelligence. Right. So, so some percentage of the time you're going to torture people who have nothing to tell you, who shouldn't be in your custody in the first place, exactly. and who haven't even met the barest standards for grabbing somebody and asking them questions. Right. So what do, you, what, do you, what do we do with that? Do we just sort of, um, as, a, as part of our overall conversation about efficacy? Well, I, I mean, I think, you know, there's, of course, the, there's, there's the, the moral and ethical problem of, of, you know, grabbing the relative of, of somebody else in order, and torturing them in order to, you know, to pressure or, or, or the other just simply mistaken identity, cases of mistaken identity. But in terms of efficacy, um, what you end up getting, obviously, you end up getting either false information or the person, in some cases, they refuse to provide information because they, they want to maintain their innocence. Um, they don't want to pretend like they know something they don't. And so, um, you know, they end up holding out. And then, of course, the only thing you can do is, is torture them more because you think that, they've, that they're simply hiding the information. Um, I would also go back to, to, the, to the quote by Trump that, uh, you know, he's got several things there. One is he, he constantly emphasizes the, the chopping of the heads and drowning in cages, which um, no civilized human being can uh, say anything about except that it's absolutely barbaric. Uh, it doesn't follow from that that either that we should use torture or that torture works, though. Um, and that's the implicit um, consequence that he wants us to um, assume follows. Um, just because they're brutal doesn't mean that us being brutal will work. Um, they're, they're doing that simply to execute people, not to get information. Secondly, he says uh, it works, you know, believe me. Well, why? Um, I'd be curious to know what, on, on what his, base, his belief is based, because uh, the evidence doesn't seem to support it, although it's, it's anecdotal, which is why I wrote my book, and I would argue certainly the logic doesn't support it. Um, so it's just, I think what you're seeing there is what, on, in some ways, understandably goes through a lot of Americans' minds, which is, oh my gosh, this is so brutal, it's so nasty, um, the consequences are so bad, we, we have to try anything. And that's where I think you get into that problem of, of assuming, of thinking about that, you know, one tiny percent that it, it might work when, in fact, 
it always ends up being a government program, and you end up torturing lots of people, including innocent people. So you torture innocent people. The other thing you might do is torture people who are not innocent, who hire, who harbor malevolence uh, towards the United States, but who are prepared to cough up disinformation. Uh, is there, are there any percentages? Does anybody know how often that's going to happen? No, they don't. <clears throat> that's that's the trouble. That's why you know I wrote I, I wrote the book um, using game theory because un, you know unfortunately this is really is an empirical question. That is to say, it's an it's a question that relates to uh, that makes claims about the the data in the world. The trouble is we don't have access to that data. Even if we did, there are all kinds of, of problems with it. So we just don't know what those percentages are. Um, what we do know, I mean, from what limited data we have, for example, from the the, the, the pretty comprehensive Senate report that you referred to earlier um, is that there was all sorts of false information. Mm-hmm. So one of the ringleaders, for example, the, the ringleader, mastermind of 9-11, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, uh, convinced under waterboarding after initially denying, but then forced to try to say something because he was being waterboarded, that the that he had been tried to recruit African-American converts in Montana mm-hmm. um, to, to join al-Qaeda and, and launch attacks in the United States. And that led to you know, all kinds of FBI investigations and running around. Uh, that's just one case. Um, so you end up with lots and lots of bad information. Now, this is an even harder thing to study, but I think we sometimes also think about this in only one direction. Am I, by torturing you, learning something from you? We don't really talk about how much you might be learning about me or thinking differently about me, and it's a potentially devastating issue. We now know that um, that Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, who's the leader of ISIS, uh, was held for four years at a series of U.S. camps, including the notorious, notorious Camp Buka, where torture was used, and he seems to have been radicalized into his current form by that experience. So once again, I don't know whether there's data, whether there's a way to study it, whether there's a way to talk about it empirically, but one possible consequence of being tortured or being at a facility where you see people pretty much like you being tortured is that you go from some kind of studious bookworm who, you know, got picked up outside his Islamic studies center uh, into a much more radicalized and violent person. I, I think you're absolutely right. And people are trying to study that. It's very it's very difficult to sort out the confounding factors, but people are, are trying to estimate the the effects of uh, revelations like Abu Ghraib or the CIA uh, torture program on the number, the increased number of, of terrorist attacks, suicide bombings, and so forth. And look, I mean, there will always be people who do that regardless of what we do. So, so the proponents are right to, to point that out. But there's some marginal increase in attacks, in recruitment of people who otherwise would not have joined had we not engaged in those activities. So I think that's absolutely uh, it's absolutely true. It's difficult to measure, but I think it's absolutely true. We certainly know that some of the initial hardcore and intercore members of al-Qaeda had been tortured in Egyptian prisons, and that seemed to have uh, deepened their resolve. And, you know, there's a—well, actually, we should we should stop and talk about this. There, America has been treated to, like, a 62-hour infomercial about torture, and that was the TV series 24, which, by its very format, the ticking clock, um, right. set up uh, what is, I think, what, we, what you would probably find an essentially false scenario that uh, there are times where it's really life or death. You need to know this. A, a dirty bomb is about to go off. Something horrible is about to happen. You've got somebody. They're not being cooperative. You've got to torture them. First of all, does that ever happen? Uh, almost never. So, so there, there's been one claim that there was a case similar to that in, uh, in Israel. Um, but essentially, it, it doesn't happen because it, if you think about it for, for just a little bit, the, the conditions are extraordinarily rare, right, that you, that you would have somebody that you know has the information, 
that they, uh, and that's the only information you don't know is location. You know absolutely everything else, um, <clears throat> which is extremely unlikely, including, for example, that there are, let's say, there's only one bomb and not, let's say, two. Mm. So there's a movie, for example, that had this premise that there's a guy in exactly this situation, um, but uh, he said there were, they thought there were three bombs, and so he confirmed it, but there was actually a fourth. Um, so there are all kinds of problems with the scenario, not to mention one of which is this, this, this naive assumption, understandable, anybody who's been to a dentist, uh, Apologies to all the dentists out there, but um, that it must work fast. In fact, the CIA's own guidelines, their own program, claim that it would take weeks, if not more than a month, to get detainees into what they called a uh, condition of compliance, to make them, to, to induce learned helplessness. The fact is, torture often does not work fast, and all these guys need to do in the ticking time bomb scenario is just hold out long enough for that bomb to go off. Mm-hmm. So I think it's it's a false problem. Moreover, it ignores the fact that any time torture has ever been used by a state, it ends up becoming a big government program. So you know, thinking like a conservative, it's a big government program that should be evaluated like a government program, not an imagined hypothetical thought experiment, because that's not what happens in reality. The other thing is, it's difficult to test. You can't torture somebody and not torture them, right? So the other option, obviously, is to be much more manipulative, to do uh, all kinds of things that are, represent essentially positive forms of engagement. Uh, long-time uh, experienced interrogators do stuff that sounds incredibly simple, like give them a postcard and say, look, you want to write home to your family? And then they wind up filling out an address and you get information that way. I mean, things that you just are so far from torture that they're kind of laughable, except that they uh, repeatedly have worked. Right. So it's hard to test torture against not torture, against essentially positive, befriending, hey, get on our good side kind of methods. But it is. It is. You're right, because once you go down the road of torture, um, you know, you, you, can't, you can't, you know, try the rapport-based technique. Um, so that you're right. You can't just, it, it simply doesn't, you can't compare the, the two techniques. I would also just add that part of it is this rapport-building you know, friendly, give them a candy bar sort of thing. Um, but, you know, as, as often happens, these things tend to be portrayed as extremes, black and white. Either you're absolutely brutal or you're, you know, treating them like your best buddy. And, in fact, it's obviously much more nuanced than that. And if you, look, if you talk to interrogators, yes, they'll do some of the rapport building, but they also are incredibly manipulative. They're brilliantly mm. manipulative. And, uh, and that's, you know, within the law, um, and that's the way they get, they get good information. You know, um, uh, there was a delegation, you probably read about this too, of uh, military people and experienced interrogators who visited the set of 24 to try to talk them out of doing all these right. torture things. And and it was led by a guy named, uh, I think, Brigadier General Patrick Finnegan, uh, who one of the things that he said to them was that torturing fanatical Islamic terrorists is particularly pointless. He said they almost welcome tor- torture, they expect it, and they want to be martyred. Uh, that, and Once again, another aspect of this that's pretty hard to quantify, that, that in some ways you're basically playing into a narrative that already exists. Exactly. So there's an FBI interrogator, the, the first interrogator to, to, to question the uh, top-ranking al-Qaeda detainee Right in, in, in 2002, was actually the FBI, not the CIA, because the CIA didn't believe that they had the, the right guy. And this guy, you know, was well familiar with torture in Middle Eastern jails. And so he was absolutely shocked and thrown off his seat when this FBI interrogator used his nickname, his informal nickname that his mother had called him, mm-hmm. and then started and held ice to his lips because he had actually been shot as a part of the capture. And uh, he started singing right away. In fact, that's how we know the name Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. So, so these techniques actually can work extremely fast. You throw them off. They're expecting to get tortured. They think the stuff we did, as horrible as it was, I mean, it's, it's nothing compared to what the, what the Egyptians do. So 
So they're ready, they're used to it, and if you start using other techniques on them, they're off their game. So is there a way, uh, John Sheeman, as we begin to uh, race towards our conclusion here, um, I, uh, when you, I don't know, if you're at a cocktail party, a dinner party, and you, know, you mentioned that you've written a book called Does Torture Work, uh, and people say, well, does it? I mean, how, is there an easy way that you answer that question? Sure. There, there, there's an easy, almost flip way, and then there's the, a little bit more nuanced way. And so the, the easy flip way is to say no. Um, of course, they should read the whole thing, but uh, to get the conclusion, the, the, the deductions and the, and the argument. But, um, uh, but, but no, it doesn't. And that does not mean that, though, that it can never work. So that's often what people say, again, going back to this idea of the ticking time bomb. Well, if it can work even once in a thousand, then, then we have to do it. And the trouble is, as I said earlier, that it's always a government program. So torture can work in the same way that you can put a fire out with gasoline. Now, the conditions in which you can do that, though, are so extremely rare that it's probably not a smart idea to fill our fire trucks with gasoline to put out fires. Um, so what I would, the more nuanced, subtle answer is that um, it, the, in, the conditions under which it can work are so unlikely that tend not to hold in the real world any of the time and the resulting costs, both the short-term costs in terms of all the bad information that we're getting and the moral and ethical costs of torturing innocent people, torturing beyond the point we're getting any information. And by the way, which is often ignored, if we're getting bad information, like we did from Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, that means we're not getting the good information. That means we're not getting the information that we need to catch or kill the bad guys. So, uh, so that's, the, that's the more nuanced answer. Uh, and that's a good place for us to end. Uh, John Sheeman, author of Does Torture Work? Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. All right. We will we will come back and end our show on a somewhat more cheery note, uh, talking about baseball, but not baseball completely unyoked from politics. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kion Wolf. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Our interns are Tiana Duquette and Alexandra Ingber. The part of Bill Curry was played by Ladysmith Black Mombazo. For show pages, articles, and mixed martial arts videos of the Here and Now staff, go to our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, the cutthroat world of stamp and coin collecting. And now... Back to Colin. That's right. Tomorrow is numismatics and philately. We had to go there eventually, right? Uh, and so you'll find out uh, exactly how scary it gets in the world of, um, and the, we're talking high-end. We're talking high-end stamps, high-end coins. All right. So before we bring uh, Doug aboard, let me mention that Doug Glanville will participate in CPTV's Celebration of Jackie Robinson on April 8th at the Palace Theater in Stanford. You might have heard like 9 million promos for this already, but there'll be food and drink, entertainment by jazz saxophonist Albert Rivera, uh, and a preview of Jackie Robinson, a Ken Burns film. The event begins at 7. Uh, ticket information and additional Event details available at cptv.org slash Jackie Robinson. Um, as long as I'm promoting things, uh, I'll promote something that Doug was not able to join me on, although I would have loved to have had, have had him. Two nights before that, on April 6th, it's April 6th, yeah, it's Wednesday night, April 6th, at the Watkinson School, I'm doing a show about public investment you know, in sports, uh, where the money goes, and, and how we decide whether the money's worth it, whether we're talking about the Whalers uh, or bringing the Patriots uh, to Hartford or uh, the uh, Yard Goats. And so Josh Solomon, the owner of the Yard Goats, has kindly agreed to join us uh, 
uh, as will Oz Griebel, one of the great business leaders of Hartford, uh, and then Victor Matheson, uh, an economist at Holy Cross, uh, College of the Holy Cross, uh, who specializes in looking at the economics of building stadiums and stuff like that. This should be a very interesting conversation. Go to Watkinson.org uh, to see about coming uh, there for that. We have a lovely dinner available for you beforehand. But that's not what we're here to talk to Doug Glanville about. He's a former Major League Baseball player, currently an analyst for ESPN and ESPN.com. Uh, he's also the author of The Game, From Where I Stand, A Baseball Player's Inside View. So, Doug Glanville, first of all, welcome back to our show. Hey, Colin, how are you doing? It's good, to good. Be back. Yeah. So where you stood a few days ago was in Cuba um, at a baseball game, uh, a remarkable and unprecedented baseball game between uh, the Tampa Bay Devil Rays and a Cuban team. Set the scene for us. I mean, just, you know, we couldn't be there. So so just tell us what, what it looked and felt like to you. Uh, I mean, it was breathtaking, really, in, in ways that were hard to even explain. Surreal. Uh, you know, the idea that you know, a, a country where – the access has been negligible in terms of our ability, you know, to have these type of exchanges over such a long period of time, and then to all of a sudden be in this platform where we're trying to extend a certain level of diplomacy and to try to create a different future. Uh, sort of watch that convergence around the game I love with baseball and, uh, you know, amongst colleagues. It, it was really an incredible experience, and uh, everybody was very welcoming. There was a fascinating dynamic leaving because we were in Tampa sort of waiting in the airport hangar. There's a lot of hours of delays and, and we were with all these other media outlets just kind of talking baseball and the loyalties, the, you know, business-wise melted down, the corporate loyalties, everybody just felt like they were honored to be part of it and it didn't disappoint. It was an exciting game. The, the environment was electric and yet there was all these sort of clouds of uncertainty on where we were going to go from here. Um, Cuban baseball is less and less of a mystery. There's plenty of uh, Cuban players now in the major leagues. I'm a Red Sox fan, so Rosalind Castillo is of great interest uh, to us. But uh, pick your team and there's somebody there. Did you nonetheless learn things about how the game is played or what it's what the crowd situation is like? I mean, is, it, is a baseball game in Cuba essentially the same as going to a baseball game here? Absolutely not. <laughs> it, was, it was a totally different planet. And, and that was, there was a lot of questions about you know, the fans, because I think it was something in order of 55,000. Uh, and they were very careful about, you know, who gets in and how they were really organizing the tickets. It wasn't sort of this open, like, hey, here's a ticket, so everybody go to the ticket gate. So um, so that curation was interesting. But as Matt Moore, the pitcher of the Tampa Bay Rays, expressed, he said, this was one of the loudest crowds I've ever pitched in front of. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that gives you a sense of, of uh, the field. Now, I played in Puerto Rico, so I'm familiar with sort of Caribbean baseball, the style. There's a lot of dancing music. It's just a, it's a different vibe. But the energy was, was, was electric, especially uh, as the game progressed and people got more comfortable. Uh, you know, I, I thought that was very different, and, and certainly the players spoke a lot about how different the environment was. Now, during your broadcast, uh, there was this uh, guy in the stands, this Obama guy, uh, watching the game. Mainly, mainly a basketball fan, uh, but uh, but you got a chance to talk to him as well. Tell us how that went. You know, adding to the surreal nature of the experience, you know, we we knew that we had a chance to interview the president uh, earlier, and we were trying to prepare. Uh, we were planning on it, but then, of course, the events in Brussels, there was concerns whether he would leave, and certainly we understood that. So, we were. You know, as they call it, in a fluid mode. And you know, once we were, it was confirmed he was there. We worked 
on specific questions, and we made sure we tried to you know, also just talk baseball and have fun around that. So my focus was Jackie Robinson's legacy. Mm-hmm. And the reason was uh, President Obama elected to personally invite and bring on Air Force One the family of Jackie Robinson. So Rachel Robinson, his daughter, Sharon, they were all on Air Force One. And I wanted to understand from him why he thought that was important and make the connect connection and connect the dots between the civil rights history and breaking the barriers, the color line in baseball, and this Cuba, uh, p- the potential with Cuba. And it was fascinating just to hear that connection. Now, I understand it because historically, as I learned over time, 1947 is when Jackie Robinson broke in mm-hmm. with the Brooklyn Dodgers. His spring training right before that you know, momentous occasion was in Havana, Cuba. <laughs> so he trained in Cuba in 47. Now, 46, he trained in Florida. And the reality was he was treated better by the Cuban sort of society than he was in the United States with Jim Crow South and all the things that were going on. And speaking to Rachel Robinson, she expressed that um, they were very welcomed in Cuba and they had a lot more challenges, as she phrased it, in, in Florida. So, you know, so you fast forward and recognize that was his moment. Now, the Cuban population was also looking at Jackie Robinson closely because the color line also applied to them. Mm-hmm. As we know, Cuba has a, l- a large mix of different shades of people. Now, the lighter-skinned Cubans, they were able to have access to the professional ranks. The darker-skinned Cubans were not. And so they had the same color line issues. And yet, when Major League teams went down to, to Havana, which was one of like nine or ten teams was Brooklyn, they saw these players like Cristobal Torriente and, and Mendez and all these great players, Martin Diego, they played at the highest level against these great major league teams, but they were blocked just like Jackie Robinson and those of color in the United States from playing. So they were watching him knowing that their opportunity could come also behind Jackie Robinson. So it was a, a, di- a direct connection between the cultures from a civil rights and a uh, almost like a barrier-breaking um, uh, perspective. And Jackie Robinson really frames it well. And so the Cuban um, you know, society has a great respect also for, for Jackie Robinson's legacy. Yeah, you know, uh, we're talking to Doug Glanville right now from uh, ESPN, a former major league player, uh, now an analyst. Um, so, you know, President Obama has been a very interesting president in the way that he's used sports. And we did a whole show about his relationship to basketball. And it's absolutely the case that not only has he, you know, used basketball to calm himself and to de-stress and, and for recreation and to stay in shape, but he's used basketball and his relationship with basketball players uh, with various kinds of initiatives. Not unusual to see him standing there with Chris Bosh talking about some kind of uh, uh, initiative for to, to build up young African-American men or, or things like that. So but baseball is a little bit new for him. And it was interesting. I mean, he really did use baseball, Doug, it seemed as part of his diplomatic initiative. This was a way of having that kind of conversation. It was. And keep in mind, in the 1860s is when baseball was introduced to, to Cuba and in this exchange. And if you look through this tumultuous history between Cuba and the United States, the consistency, the constant of peace was baseball. That was the sport. That's what uh, we had. This was the table we could meet at mutually. And that's, that's something that Rachel Robinson spoke about. So, you know, we recognize and he recognized the opportunity to appeal to the younger generation that eventually the Castro regime or regime will change. And you want to figure out what's going to be in its place. And the more access and exchange amongst a positive platform, the better chances that you can have voices 
that will see a, a potential of peace and something that could be positive. And you know, and I thought, you know, and I've always seen baseball, and baseball certainly has proven itself as a great diplomatic tool from Jackie Robinson on to what we're talking about potentially in Cuba. Uh, there's no question that that, you know, sports in general, but baseball has that unique uh, connection. So uh, I'm hopeful that that turns out to be the case. So while you were down there, as you say, you were kind of in a bubble, uh, in a euphoric bubble at that, uh, starting in the Florida airport, professional rivalries fell away, uh, people kind of got united in the quest. You're down there, and it's obviously this very exhilarating thing, this un- unprecedented diplomatic uh, initiative, uh, at least in this in this particular country. Um, you know, back home, there were other kinds of conversations going on. Should President Obama have been standing uh, at the Jose Marti um, um, commemoration with the che-, che Guevara mural in the background, blah, 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 blah. Was it was it surprising to you to get home and find out that that not everybody felt quite as enthusiastic about this? No, we we certainly had a balanced approach. I mean, uh, ESPN's Dan Lebetard, who has Cuban heritage, spoke very vehemently against it, uh, and I thought that was important too. I mean, you know, we can't dismiss the atrocities, the the social challenges that, that Cuba has faced in this in the current leadership. Um, the, the freedom of speech, the, the journalism, those questions, uh, those are reasons why you know the embargo existed and all the other factors on why our relationship has been strained. So uh, there's no no question about that. So we recognize that there's going to be some pushback, and and once again, as I mentioned, even with Brussels, should he stay? Is it appropriate? All those questions. But I still I know that President Obama has spoken a lot about what he wants to accomplish before his presidency. Cuba is, is central in that. Now, we've had 50-plus years of a, a policy that really hasn't worked. It certainly hasn't changed the, the philosophy of the government in Cuba. Um, not much has changed. And he's saying, well, let's try something else. I mean, even the United UN Security Council, is like, what is it, 188 to 2 voting against the embargo. It's not working. You know, it's not working. And so if you are going to change it up and recognize you want a nonviolent transition, you need to find some tool to bring in that, create something peaceful. I, I do think this is an effort. We'll see if it works or not, but uh, it, I, I like the fact that you're at least trying to unite on something that both countries have tremendous passion for and have in common. All right. Uh, Doug Glenville, it's always great to talk to you. Uh, season starts next week. We're all so excited, uh, especially in Red Sox Nation. But thanks for sharing the, uh, the trip to Cuba with us. Absolutely, Colin. Thanks for having me on. All right. Uh, we will be back tomorrow. As I say, you think sports can be cutthroat, Get a few coins and stamps in front of people. See what they turn into. They're monsters, I tell you. In other news, President Trump visited Raul Castro during a Cuba versus U.S. baseball game. Cuba won, which means that the American team will be sent to prison.